welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. So, uh, yeah, we talked about Israel and, and how God's had a, a, obviously a, a plan for them throughout history uh, as a people and as a nation. But have you ever wondered about God's plan, if there is one, for our nation? And that's what we want to think about. Um, his plans, his purposes for Australia, for Australians, because many people are under the assumption that we've always just been a very secular, sort of non-Christian, even anti-Christian nation and that people have no interest in God, uh, there's been very little effect or uh, maybe a negative effect on our nation from churches, from Christians, but history reveals exactly the opposite, as we shall see. So for six weeks, we're looking at God's call on our nation, uh, what he's done in the past, what he's doing in the present, and what the hope for is in the future. Because as I said, there's a lot of negative talk about our nation, especially in recent years. Um, you know, in the mainstream media, in, in social media, just uh, criticism of politicians, you know, anger about government, you know, uh, complaints about COVID restrictions and lockdowns. And, and there's always the negative normal press that stirs fear and anger and anxiety, doom and gloom predictions about the economy or the climate or whatever else. And so our future can appear... look looking quite bleak, but um, there's good news. The good news is the gospel, the gospel about Jesus. It's available for you, for me, for anyone who's smart and humble enough to just come to God and listen to what God says in his word about our lives, about him, about the world, and about how he can come and touch us and, and change us. And then we, we want to live it and share it with our children and their children. And so our nation then has a positive hope for the future. Uh, and, and that's what happens when the gospel gets out. Because, you know, we're all called to know God personally, but not privately and individually. So we have this personal relationship with God. But then when you really live for the Lord, you find yourself as part of a community, the family of God, the body of Christ, the house of God. These are all descriptions of an interconnection of people with a personal faith but a community-wide or community connection lifestyle and so then we find that you know if you're really part of the body of Christ part of the kingdom of heaven living here on earth there's results that flow into the communities around us uh, including as big as our whole nation right and and that's scriptural because if you look at Acts 17 there's a passage here that says, From one man, meaning Jesus, God has created all the nations throughout the whole earth. There it is. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any, any one of us. Isn't that fascinating? So God has purpose. For nations, including ours. And God even uses the negatives in nations for his purposes. For example, you remember the story perhaps of Joseph who was 
uh, imprisoned for years in Egypt, having been sold into slavery by his own brothers. Terrible injustice. But then he's miraculously elevated to become second in charge, like the prime minister of the whole nation. His brothers, through a drought in their land, come down to beg for food. Joseph reveals himself to them. They're like, oh no, flip, we're dead because this is the brother we left for dead, but now it's vengeance time. He forgives them and then he famously says to them, hey, it's okay, it's all good as they say these days. And he declared, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. Isn't that incredible? That, that something that was no good could be turned for good and God has a habit of, a, of being able to do that. And so there's no perfect country there's a lot of bad in any place, community, nation, but God can turn things for good. So, for example, European arrival and settlement of Australia wasn't all smooth and easy, right? Some free settlers were very much out for selfish gain. Engagements with Indigenous Australians were often problematic, to say the least, Many of us or our ancestors that came were convicts, some with very strong criminal intent. You know, so there's a lot of bad there. But the first fleet brought the gospel. Jesus and the message of Jesus came with those first settlers. And here he is, the hope and answer to the world, the saviour for all mankind, humankind. And so there's been a great deal of good in our nation as a result. So even though it's too simplistic to say, oh, we're a Christian nation, the waters are a lot you know, m more muddied than that. It's not so clear. But there is still a sense that God's hand is on our nation and the people here to save and bless and guide and, and, and use them. And so we're going to look today um, at our history and see how God has been working over the years. You know, God's destiny for our nation started uh, many, many years ago. It was hinted at over 400 years ago when European settlers, sorry, European explorers had heard of this supposed land down south. They had already got as far as what we know as Indonesia because the Dutch uh, East Indies had been um, uh, settled there by Europeans. Uh, and then in 1606, a Dutch explorer, William Jan Zoon, he was the first European to see the Australian coastline. The same year, a Portuguese explorer, Pedro Fernandes de Quiros, there's a few names, babies, rockets, great, but you throw that into your next baby's name, you know. Um, he was searching uh, for, for this land that people had heard about, and he, he landed on an island. He figured he had found it, except he had probably landed on one of the islands of Vanuatu. But that didn't, although some contend that he really did make it to the north coast of Queensland. But he realised his mistake. He wanted actually to press on to find what we know as Australia, this larger island. But his crew had had enough. They were about to mutiny, so they had to turn around and go back. But he did name the place that he found Australia del Espirito Santo. Excuse my bad attempt at Portuguese or Spanish accent. Uh, pronunciation, the great south land of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, 1606, he prophesied over the whole region, not just the land that he was standing on. So that may have been, as we said, Vanuatu. But he proclaimed this, let the heavens and the earth and all those present witness that I ho hoist this emblem of the Holy Cross on which Jesus Christ was crucified. 
and whereon he gave his life for the ransom and remedy of all the human race. I take possession of all this part of the south as far as the pole in the name of Jesus, from which now on shall be called the southern land of the Holy Ghost. And this always and forever and to the end that to all the people in all these lands, the holy and sacred good news may be preached zealously and openly. And so we still believe for that today. And so, of course, his prophecy includes the island of Australia, even if he was a little further to the northeast. So if you fast forward 150 years from him, of course, you get Captain Cook coming here in 1770, First Fleet arriving in 1788, 1,500 people, half of them are convicts. We all know about that. You, you know, we're all flipping criminals when you look at some of our history um, and some of those convicts were sent for pretty minor I mean these days they get a slap in the wrist and a warning in a section 12 or whatever they call it you know <laughs> they got transportation sometimes for uh, I think Ruth's got a, an ancestor they figure was ski- stealing a scarf and off he went and he ended up in Australia and, uh, and aren't we the better for it praise the Lord thanks babe for, for, uh, for that scarf all those years ago um, and uh, he said, why you got so many scarves and why I've had to say, no, no. and I've had to run over to the counter and say, no, 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 I'll pay for it. She wasn't, no, no, really. She, she, she was just forgetting, I don't know what she was thinking. Babe, come back, got to pay for that. Um, anyway, runs in the family. Um, so half of them were convicts. She's never stolen a scarf, to the best of my knowledge. Um, the others were soldiers, government officials, medical staff, oh, and one church minister. A chaplain, Richard Johnson. He held the first Christian church service here within a week of landing down near Circular Quay. You can actually see the monument commemorating where that service was or near where the service was and near where the first church was built. Um, And there's a plaque there talking about it, still there today. He held services for years in the open air because the government had no money except for just surviving and putting up you know, basic buildings to, to get by so they wouldn't designate any money to building a church. So he built one himself with his own funds and it burnt down five years later, possibly from arson. So it was tough going. He had some really hard times, but he had put a stake in the ground for the gospel and other chaplains and ministers followed and the gospel was starting to be spread. Churches were built. The churches, of course, were the basis of the first schools in the colony of New South Wales, then colony of Tasmania, and then the colony of uh, Victoria. And it wasn't until like the 1850s that the state school system started. So there was like more than half a century of churches providing all the Anglicans and the Catholics providing all the education for our children. And so uh, that's just a classic single example of how influential the church and Christians have been in our nation's history. A history that is often overlooked because many history books have been written by secular, non-Christian people and they've often chosen to write the church out of the narrative they tell, especially when they're talking about the positives. One historian who hasn't done that is Stuart Piggin and he's an associate professor at Macquarie Uni and a Christian and he's written a lot about Christian history in Australia. One of his books, he writes this, When the Christian church in Australia is accorded its due place in Australian history, the resultant new perspectives are so at variance from accepted views that they will strike those familiar with Australian history as audacious. 
In other words, he's saying it's a shock for people to find out what really went on and how positive the church Christian influence has been. He says there needs to be a radical revision of many areas of our history. And so basically, you know, we have a rich Christian heritage that most of us have no idea about because we weren't taught that at school. And his research has shown how Christians were influential in so many areas of Australian society, in government, setting laws, policies, major institutions, bringing care and compassion to the plight of Indigenous Australians, often forced off the land, often brutally by settlers. But contrary to popular opinion, the church was therefore the missionaries sent out with a largely positive and helpful influence to the first Australians, again, contrary to often, you know, pop culture and the news reports. Uh, the church and Christians have been there in bringing a moral and ethical influence into businesses so that prosperous Aussies weren't just improving their own position and station, but building a society and blessing others by supporting charities, initiatives to help less fortunate people. See, that's the moral fibre that curbs rampant free enterprise. You get free enterprise and capitalism with evil intent, you've got real issues, you know. But early on there are a lot of Christian people promoting business and free enterprise, but also having that philanthropic, you know, positive charitable influence as well. Church has been very positive in stirring a missions movement, providing a base from which to reach the islands of the South Pacific with the gospel, which we'll hear more about. And so many exciting stories going to, you know, New Zealand and other islands. And, of course, in providing churches all over the country for people to worship in, to meet and fellowship and to build communities. Have you noticed when you drive, you know, I get to ride motorbikes sometimes out, uh, it's ministry, this poor guy here, I've got to look after him somehow. And it's, it's just total, it's a mission field out there. You know, these motorcyclists, they need a chaplain, so I just... I've taken it on as part of my calling, suffering for Jesus. So off we go, riding, you know, Victoria, New South Wales. And there are so many little churches that you see dotted around, random little places. Sometimes it's a bit sad to think, oh, they're not being used. But societies shift and change. And they were certainly very positive at the time. They were on the forefront as part of the pioneer settlement built into the fabric of society. All these churches dotted around, they represented the communities of faith that were being built, spreading Christian values into the wider community. And did you know that many of those churches were funded and supported by the government? The Church Act of 1836 allowed for a thousand pounds for the building of any church of one of the main Christian denominations once they had raised 300 pounds. So there was big money at the time. So you get together and you get going and the government actually had money saying, bam, go for it, build a church. And they even allowed for clergy salaries to be subsidised so they could get people, ministers, into the community right there as they were building out into the, into the um, regions. Uh, and so this is just another example of how the Christian church was valued and supported by the government in our early history. And speaking of Acts, not the book of Acts in the Bible, but government type, the Federation at 1900, the Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act, and if you want more information on this, there he is, Mark Fowler, over coffee, he will answer all your legal questions, all about Constitution, and he will probably correct half the things I say, he'll probably say, well, Pastor Chris, you know, 
he's having a go, but, you know, but anyway, he can correct me, but I think he'll be uh, approving of most of this. The, the, um, in one section of the Constitution, it states, people of the various colonies, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth. So that was our calling. Under the hand of God, we will become a commonwealth, because they were just, you know, individual colonies until that point. And so indeed, with the blessing of God, Australia has become a prosperous, successful, safe, secure nation. We enjoy, you know, political stability, personal freedom, low rates of crime, opportunities for different careers, businesses. We've got arts developing, freedom of speech, you know, high standard of living, one of the highest in the world. And so much of that is based on the Christian influence that we had in the first few decades of European settlement. And they were laying foundations. And, and of course, without that Christian influence, things could have been very different. Like with all the, you know, the convicts and ex-convicts in society, it was quite possible. We could have had quite a lawless society develop. A real lawless state with rampant crime, anarchy, but God's hand was on us for better things. Which the Bible talks about. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Thank you. NLT version says, look. Godliness makes a nation great, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Or some translations say righteousness exalts a nation. And so sin could easily have had its way and made this nation a terrible, disgraceful kind of situation. But the righteousness of God through God's people, godly people, godliness has exalted us and blessed us. For example, you may have heard of Charles Latrobe. There's, a, I think, a Latrobe University, isn't there, in Victoria? There's a lot of Latrobe things. He's like Macquarie in New South Wales. I think you're driving right around, a lot of Latrobe. So he was in the New South Wales government, but in 1851 he was sent to be governor of the new colony of Victoria. In his first speech there, he said this, it is not by individual aggrandisement or, you know, uh, endeavours achievements or by the possession of numerous flocks or herds or acres that the people shall secure for this country enduring prosperity and happiness but by the acquisition and maintenance of sound religious and moral institutions without which no country can become great so that's typical of the views of the founding fathers and mothers in early government positions of influence people who set laws and policies down to further the gospel, appreciating that the Christian influence is a really good one. Piggins, this historian, he says, by the end of the 1800s, the great majority of Australians were not only formed in Christian morality and values, but were also aware of the essential truths of the gospel. Christianity was not countercultural as it is today, but part of popular culture. It helped to make it an admirable culture, inculcating the discipline necessary to achieve private prosperity, the altruism critical to public prosperity, and the spirituality which nurtured the quest for enduring prosperity. Wow, isn't that well said? And of course, we've had our dark sides, but even in the dark, the light shines. So, back to the convicts, because you can't get away from it, there were plenty involved. Transportation went for years, you know, it wasn't just the first 750 on the first fleet, thousands. But they were often regularly given Bible lessons to teach them how to read. 
So the Bible was the classic book that they used for instruction. They were often given Bibles in attempt to reform them, and many were very well reformed, as you may know. Many went on to have great careers, part of, uh, you know, they'd serve their time, and then they'd play a productive part in the development of the new colonies. Ruth and I were at Port Arthur earlier this year. You may have been there. Yes, it's tinged with sadness for several reasons. The Indigenous people, uh, the convict history, the massacre. Uh, but there's plenty of stories relating to the convicts of officials and chaplains who really brought a great, strong, positive Christian influence on otherwise pretty bleak situation and conditions that people were putting up putting up with you know the the um and this is revealed in one example i found um even on the transport ships there's a naval surgeon by the name of colin browning is a good surname good enough to want to change your original name for though why you'd bother i don't know um You'd have to have a very gracious husband to allow you to do That's all I can say. Yeah, Not that he'd want to put tickets on himself in a public place, but I'm just saying, you know, hypothetically. Um, this guy served on eight convict transport ships. And as a surgeon, he was in charge not only of the physical health, but their gig was um, for all the crew and all the convicts in charge. They were in charge of uh, their overall care, their instruction and their discipline. And in 1845, on the ship Teresa, he addressed the convicts when they embarked. And some attributed this address to the beginning, and this is a quote, to the beginning of their awakening from spiritual death. So he's obviously a Christian and sharing the gospel. On the voyage, which of course took months, he taught them all to read using the Bible and the prayer book. That's all they had, no newspapers. <laughs> No, you know, scrolling on Facebook. Uh, oh, no, he also had written sermons. Here you go, boys, read this. Um, they ended up with a full-on revival on board. Of the 220 convicts, 156 had sought out the surgeon for prayer to dedicate their lives to Christ. The guards had nothing to do. There were no floggings, no use of irons, no discipline needed that they were normally having to do, these unruly convicts. Um, this guy, Browning, wrote about his reasons for the lack of discipline needed. He said, I find the amount of reformation among the convicts strikingly to correspond with the degree of zeal with which the gospel, in all its simplicity, was brought to bear on their hearts. Isn't that awesome? So it, it makes a difference. You know, someone really gives their life to Christ, becomes a Christian. The lifestyle is going to be better than your average convict. Let's hope. And that's the plan, you know. Um, and this idea of the reformed convict wasn't unusual. You know Charles Darwin? You've heard of Charles Darwin? He visited Australia and he commented on this. He wrote this. On the whole, as a place of punishment, the object is scarcely gained. In other words, he's like, this is not working if you just want to punish people from what he's seen. But as a means of making men honest, of converting vagabonds useless in one hemisphere into active citizens in another, and thus giving birth to a new and splendid country, it has succeeded. To agree to a degree perhaps unparalleled in history so yes we had convicts but we didn't end up being a nation of criminals you know there was reform for these convicts 
thanks be to God and the Christians who were representing him because these Christians were among the most committed to achieving that success that Charles Darwin had picked up on. Not just to have a prison system on the other side of the world, but to give birth to a great nation with godly influences, yeah? So early on in settlement, the concept, you know, of the lucky country developed, or we should say the blessed country, but we're known as the lucky country all over the world. Governor Macquarie wrote about this. Get this, he wrote home in the early 1800s, and he said, the children being born in Australia were very robust and comely and well-made, promising to be a fine race of people. He observed that women thought to be beyond childbearing age proved remarkably fertile in this new colony. <laughs> Go, ladies, right. A couple more in you, you'll be fine. Love that. Back at home, oh, yes, it's dreary and cold and you probably can't have any more children. But here in this new lucky country, conditions are good. Go on, prove to be remarkably fertile, please. I love it. And so this is like a physical manifestation of the blessing of God and awesome climate, you know, even though we have extremes and we always have, just saying, you know, like look at history, we've had droughts and floods right through, incredible, crazy, extremes. But we're tough, we're built for it, pioneering people. And of course, you know, again, there's plenty of stories of crime, atrocities, harsh conditions, brutal punishment, very rough characters. But even then and there, God had representatives on the ground to reach the broken, lost people, like the four men sentenced to hang in Sydney in 1820. A Methodist minister was present. He wrote about his experience. I accompanied the four men to the place of execution. Pretty rough justice back then. You know, we don't know what they were up for, but you could get killed for whatever. When they came within the sight of the gallows, one of them turned around and said to me, Sir, I depend on Jesus for salvation. Will you pray for me? As you would if you're a smart man. I did pray for him and never did I see a man more deeply affected or more earnest in prayer. And so, you know, God will meet someone even if they're going to go to the gallows and be hanged for whatever. And there were people, ministers, chaplains. Another minister shared how he'd seen three condemned convicts turn to God in their last days as he spent time with them, visiting them. And then he wrote about this after their hanging. He wrote this, I should say, about their hanging. Before they ascended the platform, we sang a hymn together which produced an astonishing effect. And as they mounted the awful scaffold, they sang the words, vital spark of heavenly flame, quit, oh quit this mortal frame. 6,000 prisoners were present and thousands of tears were shed. Even the sheriff and the military officers melted into tears. The circumstance increased our congregation very much. (laughs) So people were like touched by these condemned men singing hymns to God about to launch off into eternity and people are like, flip, they're okay with God. I need to be right too. And people moved to tears, thousands of them influenced. And revivals. Now, I have read and discovered so many. We've had dozens, if not over a hundred, recorded revivals, times of community awakening to the good news of Jesus and something, again, most historians have ignored. I want to mention a few. You know, in the 1800s, the Methodists, they saw heaps of revivals in and around Sydney and, and then out into New South Wales in different rural settings. Um, and there were other colonies uh, going 
on with the same deal, in regional areas particularly. Here's one in South Australia recorded in a newspaper report from 1859. The fruits of the revival are palpably seen in our town. Upwards of 500 of the townsmen are said to have been converted. The different churches are every Sunday well filled and the public houses proportionately deserted on weekdays. And so the, you know, rum drinking buffets just down at the pub getting drunk are getting born again and getting their lives together. Uh, on the first, so here we go. Um, here's a first hand account from a revival in Kayama, probably one of uh, Byron's great, 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 great grandfather ministers. Because wasn't your dad a minister down in Kayama? Or he retired there? Your grandfather was a minister in Kayama. Okay, well, this is before his time, but it could have been his great-grandfather. 1864, there was a large congregation at the prayer meeting. Then began what the good old people called a breaking down. The communion rail was crowded with seekers. Some rough men were among them, including a storekeeper in the town, notorious for his fearful temper and furious conduct when under its influence. Night after night for the rest of the week and into the next, the meetings continued. It was a revival that gave workers to the church, teachers to the Sunday school, local preachers to the circuit, and ultimately several ministers to the church in the state. And so these are just typical of the accounts you can find of people talking about awakenings, revivals. The one guy, John Watsford, was the son of a convict. And he was the first Australian-born Methodist minister because obviously early on they were sending him out. I've come across, riding around Tasmania, a church that was built in Scotland and then donated. The Presbyterians used to buy them from Scotland and they'd pack them down, timber churches, put them on a ship, bring them out and reconstruct them because they didn't have all the materials available here. And so there were a lot of support from churches in the UK starting. But this guy, first Australian-born Methodist minister, son of a convict, and he saw a lot of revivals in his ministry, including one in Parramatta in 1840, springing from a series of prayer meetings. And he wrote this about it, about one night. The power of God came upon the people who were overwhelmed by it in every part of the room, and what a cry for mercy was heard. It was heard by passers-by in the street, some of whom came running in to see what was the matter and were smitten down at the door in great distress by the power of God. The clock of a neighbouring church struck 12 before we could leave the meeting. How many were saved, I cannot tell. Day after day, week after week, the work went on and many were converted. So, these were often localised revivals in smaller churches, regional areas, springing up spontaneously from prayer, from passionate Christians. But sometimes there were bigger evangelistic crusades, big uh, meetings in cities with citywide revivals, such as, this is so long ago, you may have heard of Billy Graham, right? He came in 59, 79 for many years. Let me ask, who got saved, who got born again in the Billy Graham crusade? Anyone here today? One, at least one. Any meeting I've been to for 40 years of being a Christian, you could usually find at least one or two. I was born again. It used to be the 59, maybe fewer of them left now, but 79, you know. So way beyond that, before R.A. Torrey came from the USA to Melbourne in 1902. Did anyone get saved at the R.A. Torrey crusade in 1902? Okay, so you'd be 123 at least or whatever. Um, so they had a committee... They got a number of churches all joined together, different churches, but with one common focus to bring the gospel. And this guy's famous 
preacher. Um, and in the lead up to the meetings, they had 16,000 different prayer meetings in and around Melbourne. They had over 100,000 people attending these prayer meetings. Melbourne only had a population of half a million at the time. So by the time they had the meetings, the crusade meetings, they, they had, I've, I had to read this several times, every home in Melbourne was visited twice to introduce people to the gospel and tell them about the crusades. They, they, were, they were keen. So when they had the meetings, <laughs> attendance was over 250,000 people each week for four straight weeks. That was twice the number of people who went to the crusades that the famous D.L. Moody held in London at the same time. And yet, most Australians have never heard of that. But you ask Australian Christians, they've heard of D.L. Moody, they've heard of the great revivals in London, and, in the, you know, and for some reason we have no idea of what God has done in our own nation. They recorded 10,000 decisions for Christ. Finally, last story. Many of you as Christians may have heard of the famous Welsh Revival, 1905, Evan Roberts. And the stories, including the pit ponies in the Welsh mines that had to be retrained because in the coal mines, all the commands they used to get were riddled with swear words. Then all the coal miners got born again, stopped swearing, and the ponies stopped working. True story, well recorded, and they were like freaking out. All the coal mining owners were like, the ponies aren't working because we're saying, please go this way. And so they they would know what to do. And so they they had to retrain the ponies. And I've heard that story many, many times, great famous Welsh revival. Ha! It's very likely that you could trace the Welsh revival to the Illawarra area revival of 1902 in the coal mines of what is it, you know, Port Kembler and down in the Wollongong area, because we had a lot of connection between the mother country and back. They sent ministers out, they sent ministers back. And so the local press reported down there that because of this revival, so many of the coal miners were becoming Christians that guess what? The pit ponies stopped working. I had never read this before. Heard it a million times about Wales. It happened in Australia three years earlier. Isn't that amazing? And so... That's enough for today. I could go on. Honestly, there's a rich history. And we'll talk about what God's doing, what we, you know, he's calling us for into the future. But I just want to encourage you. What does all this mean? If God has done it before, he can do it again. That God has a heart for our nation. He has a calling on our nation, not just to be a bunch of bullfeds, whinging it about the world and each other and having a go, and regardless of what government. I mean, you change the government, it doesn't change some people. It doesn't change, you know, you think, oh, get rid of, go mo, well, bring it out. Well, he's, he's, got, he's human as well, so have a go at him. You know, it's like, who'd be a politician? Uh, honestly, you know, so they deserve our prayer and our support, and also we need to look to the Lord for hope not just expect policies or governments or handouts or individual people to make the world a perfect place. It'll never be perfect, but the light of the gospel can always shine and people can always have their life turned around from wherever they're at into a place of hope by putting their lives in the hands of God. And we've got to believe for that and we can pray and believe for the Spirit of God to move on our neighbours and on our nation like we've seen before for people to come to know Christ. It's changed 
my life, if you've given your life to Christ here today, then you know it's changed your life and it can change people en masse. And that's what we pray for, yeah? Come on, let's finish with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And we thank you for your hand on our nation, for hope for the future, all the darkness and dreariness and distress that goes on. But Lord, you love people. You come in and forgive people and touch lives and change lives and help people overcome whatever's gone on. And we thank you. You are the Christ in us, the hope of glory. I pray that we would carry that hope into the world today and, uh, and shine your light. And I pray, Lord, we take a moment here before you to consider our life before you. I want to encourage you, if you're watching online or if you're here at 101, if you've never given your life to God, never surrendered your life, never invited Jesus to be Lord of your life, I encourage you to do that today. Just a simple, humble, heartfelt prayer is all it takes for your life to change like that. He'll forgive you for sin, all your wrongdoing that creates a barrier between you and God. He loves you. The Bible says he knocks on the door of your heart. All you do is open it up. He'll come inside. You just pray a simple prayer. Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. Help me to follow you. He'll do that. I encourage you to do that. And if you pray that prayer, maybe it's a recommitment kind of prayer. Talk to someone who you know here at church or come and talk to me. We want to give you Bible, other books to help you read and resources to to follow him. It's the single best decision you can ever make with your life, to give it to God, to surrender it to Jesus. He's got a great plan for your life. We thank you, Lord, for your calling and for that plan to be fulfilled in our lives for your glory. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.